Welcome to Sustainable Northfield, a podcast project based in Northfield, Minnesota, focused on making sustainability education more accessible and interesting for everyone. On this episode, we are so excited to share a project from college students Asa Gold and Grace Lindmark, who spoke with many of the people involved in the construction of the Community Action Center's Hillcrest Village. You might hear them talk about previous episodes. That's because this was part of a series for Professor Paul Jackson's class at St. Olaf. In this episode, they speak with Scott Wapata, Martha Larson, Betsy Buckheit, Abby Muser-Hare, Steve Schmidt, Rolf Jacobson, and Brian Nowak. Without further ado, here's episode seven, Hillcrest Village. Welcome back. In the previous episode, we heard about the Ole Avenue Project, St. Olaf's solution to student housing issues. The college is not alone in facing housing shortages in Minnesota. According to a 2018 study, Rice County, which is home to the college and some of Northfield, is the third most expensive area for housing in Minnesota, just behind Rochester in the Twin Cities metro area. How does this affect people in Northfield? Well, incomes of renters are dropping while rents increase. Organizations that work to address housing are struggling to keep up with the need for shelter and transitional housing. One such organization is the Community Action Center, or CAC, a local, non-governmental, basic needs organization centered on community solutions. It's led by Executive Director Scott Wapata, who stresses the severity of this housing crisis. I spoke with him to learn more about CAC strategies. We're experiencing like systemic issues with our shelter work. There was no place for our clients to go from. And so we'd bring somebody in in an emergency and there was no place to exit to because there's no housing available or housing stock in the area. And so we would end up kind of with families staying longer in our shelters, which would then clog the shelter so that nobody could access emergency housing. And it was this systemic issue. As a basic needs organization, CIC saw this housing crisis as a key responsibility. So that's where the Hillcrest Project comes in? Exactly. CAC set out to create a housing project that could serve the community in a flexible way, fulfilling both immediate and long-term needs of residents who are often recovering from traumatic experiences. The goal was to create housing that didn't, in Scott's words, feel like a dehumanized barracks, but which instead prioritized interaction, community building, and healing. So we started with a dream of just building units of housing out there. Um, And we navigated anywhere from five to 30 units of housing. We looked at government funding. We looked at a lot of other opportunities and how we would pay for this and how we would do it. Um, We came to a pretty quick conclusion that a lot of the formal mainstream approaches prioritized cost effectiveness as high priority, um, as in get as many units as you can for the cheapest dollar you possibly can. They also prioritized very formal compliance-driven, low-income, affordable units over the idea of like responsive community emergency shelter and even supportive housing such to the point where we learned at some point going through a mainstream route would really take away the ability to increase emergency shelter options in the town and it would really only provide additional housing hearing the voices of our shelter clients knowing that nobody else was hearing those voices we felt a responsibility to amplify that over just the general affordable housing conversation in the community and so then we pivoted to something we thought maybe we could do and hold some type of very supportive community that prioritized space and privacy and healing and like a trauma responsive environment, which again, gets away from building housing and maybe building a home. 
The plan is to construct six townhome buildings with a total of 17 units, including three emergency shelter units, six transitional units for families, and eight affordable housing units for workers with no strict time limit. The goal is to prioritize applicants who are families, coming from chronic homelessness, struggling with mental health issues, or experiencing severe poverty. I'm hearing a lot about the work being done to address the social aspects of housing, but what about the sustainability concerns we covered last episode? That's a great question. As the project started to form, Scott and the rest of the team realized they couldn't create a new housing complex without considering the environmental implications. We had to pivot away and actually ask a mission question unrelated to the project about how does climate action relate with a basic needs organization and is a healthy climate a basic need? And that took a lot of months of wrestling and some toe-to-toe arguments internally. We at some point had to decide um, if we as an organization thought that environmental justice was a core part of our mission and whether it was necessary for a more just community. There's a lot of arguments from a climate crisis standpoint. Is there time to prioritize climate justice or is it really it's such a crisis we just have to get climate action done? Justice being a core part of our mission, we decided that since climate change impacts low-income community members more, that it was our responsibility to invest climate action approaches into other support services that would also impact low-income community members. From there, it was no longer about adding some environmental ideas to a project. It was actually about they co-drove the project from there. Once sustainability became a priority, the CAC recruited collaborators from the community and the construction and design world. One of those people is Martha Larson, the manager of energy and sustainability at Carleton College. She got involved as a volunteer on the CAC Housing Construction Task Force, focused on fundraising and communications. And I said, this is a once in a generation opportunity. You know, it's timely. We finished the climate action plan. It wants to do a demonstration project for net zero energy buildings. And the CAC is sitting here with this proposal in their hands. That sounds exciting, but what about local government involvement? We know that the Northfield Planning Commission had a lot to say about the Ole Avenue project. How do they feel about Hillcrest? So Scott actually met with the City Council and Planning Commission early. Although the CAC is not a governmental organization, they wanted open communication about the project in order to best meet the needs of the community. In terms of the commission's perspective, I'll let Betsy Buckheit tell the story from her perspective. That was a delightful project to work on. But there's an option to bring things to us in a more informal fashion. And the CAC really did that. They started with a sort of first plan that they threw out what they want to do and what they thought might fit under the zoning regulations. And they came to us a year ahead of time and we talked about it. I mean, one of the things we look at is our comprehensive plan wants to kind of move away from the typical sort of Apple Valley suburb where it's all garage doors and drivability. You know, we we wanted to say, well, if you're going to make this a little neighborhood, you know, we'd really like to see if you could hide the parking behind the houses. If you can make the the front doors and things, you know, talk to each other so that it it is a neighborhood and more cohesive. They came back and forth a few times, and then they also were thinking about how could we make this net zero? And so that was really their idea, and we were delighted. We couldn't have required them to do that. We could just say, oh, cool, we're so glad you did. But so they went back and forth a few times and kind of developed their plans in conjunction with the planning commission and it just got better and better they they took some suggestions and they were really creative so what comes next now that the city is on board well the work certainly isn't done now cac and their community partners had to plan and design the homes to meet both their environmental and housing goals all with the budget of a local nonprofit. this sounds like it's becoming a bigger and bigger project to take on who else joined the team for the design and construction process 
Well, a lot of people, actually. There are basically three spheres of partners, including the CAC Housing Construction Task Force, the Environmental Design Consult Team, and the Systems Consultants. All these spheres had to work together while maintaining communication with the city of Northfield, donors, and future residents. Together, they did a lot of research to see what sustainability goals they could feasibly reach given their finite budget. After some explorations regarding cost and feasibility, the whole team settled on a goal of combining standard passive house building practices to create what's called net zero certified housing. Net zero. Is that about energy efficiency? Absolutely. Basically, they used an integrative approach focusing on insulation, the mechanical systems, and the orientation of the houses to make big impacts in the overall energy consumption. I'm no expert in building design, but I can bring in someone who is. Abby Muser-Hare, an architect at Precipitate, joined the project as one of the certified passive building consultants. To start out with, we kind of just took that existing design and input it to see where they at, like what, what is the performance at this stage? And then, yeah, we certainly tested different aspects or strategies to see how they impacted the building performance. And that's part of our process is hosting workshops. So we do an envelope workshop where we look at the building enclosure with the, the team. So the builder, the architecture designer, our client, the CAC board, and any other you know engineer or consultant that's on the team. It's an opportunity where we might make suggestions, but we encourage a dialogue. We're not going to know the right answer. We know that, oh, A A will improve the performance of the building more than option B, but A may not be cost effective, you know, might might be too expensive. So I think kind of we, we make suggestions to kind of catalyze conversation and discussion and give the other team members something to respond to and then offer their own better idea. You know, often the, the best solution is one that has arisen from multiple voices kind of offering their perspective and back and forth. Abby goes on to describe the passive housing model as not only reducing energy costs, but as a better model, period. It increases air quality and building quality by creating an airtight filter that cuts down on mold and mildew and creates more constant, stable temperatures. What interested me was how she sees these more technical design concerns as closely linked to social and environmental justice issues. I'd say that, you know, energy conscious design often can be kind of at odds with, oh, they that, that you can't afford that. But it doesn't have to be. I think that's an attitude and an excuse. That's a fallacy and you can find the synergies there. Martha Larson also sees the common idea of sustainability and affordability being at odds as a false dichotomy. In the end, that cost increase was only about like, I think it was like 10%. And given the energy savings, it actually, you know, over time would pay back. Wow, these numbers really speak for themselves. I had no idea sustainability could be so accessible. There's a few people on the team who had the same response. Yeah, it definitely has changed the way I think about building. Wait, who's that? I'm Steve Schmidt. I'm a local Northfield building contractor, have been for the last 40 years, and currently a board member on the Community Action Center's board. I've been aware of the Community Action Center and the work they do as long as I've been in Northfield. It's an an amazing organization. So when the opportunity came to help them with this building project, it was kind of a, I have to be involved in this from multiple perspectives to see what they're doing and learn something along the way, work with other people that are going to be involved in it, and get as many people in the building industry involved as possible. But they were challenges too. Steve told us how current construction industry standards are often at odds with high-performance sustainability goals. At first, Steve had to be convinced this was even possible. 
the perception always was that it was too expensive to pursue and too difficult to build because of the inspections and uses of different materials, more complicated than you would want to undertake for a community-driven project, especially when you're going to have multiple different builders building it, which is what our goal was to continue with the community involvement theme. I'll admit I was not in favor of it. I kind of got drugged along to participate in it. Martha and Scott both were the ones, especially Scott. I remember Scott telling me one day, if this was going to be built, it was going to be built net zero ready, just because that was the right thing to do. As it unfolded, the challenge was, well, how do we make it work? How do we create a construction methods and system that you can build in a group setting. None of this was done by one person. This was done as a group, all of us together making this happen. What was the issue? Why couldn't normal construction practices be used? Well, without getting too technical, it all comes down to how heat moves through a building. Here's Steve again. So what you have to create is somehow a thermal break to insulate every stud. General construction that's built in Minnesota today, the exterior walls are built with two by sixes. 16 on center. And then the outside is cladded with a product called um, orientated strand border OSB sheeting. And the outside of that is cladded with a waterproof resistive barrier house wrap. And then after the wiring and plumbing and windows are put in, you put a bat of insulation in there between each stud that has an R value of 21. And you put your vapor barrier over the top of that and you drywall that for a sealed wall system. Okay, one more question. What's an R value and why is it so important to net zero building? So an R value is a measure of how insulated a structure is. Low R values mean heat is lost super easily. High R values mean heat stays in. So in a cold state like Minnesota, you'd probably want a super high R value, right? Exactly. An R value in the teens or even low 20s isn't going to cut it in December and January if you want to see net zero level energy efficiency. So we came up with multiple different walls and the one we settled on was building an outside wall, exactly like I described before, with a bat of insulation between every stud, but now we've moved the studs to 24 inches on center. So we've eliminated some studs. And what we're going to do is we're going to insulate that wall with our R21 insulation. It's not going to have any wiring or any plumbing in it. It's going to be a totally self-sealed wall. And on the inside, we're going to put a layer of one inch styrofoam on that wall cavity and seal it tight so no moisture can get in there. Then we're going to build another two by four wall on the inside, back it up against that piece of styrofoam then that is where all of our wiring and plumbing and all of our mechanical will be in that two by four wall. So there's no interruption to that outside wall. It's sealed tight. And then we're going to come back on our two by four wall and we're going to spray two inches of foam insulation on there. That'll give that wall an R14 because what you want to have is you want to have more insulation on the outside than on the inside. We partnered with the University of Minnesota, their sustainable housing arm, and CSBR. They provided an immense amount of knowledge and computer software that allowed us to create building systems and test them theoretically as to how they would perform. We do a pretty wide variety of stuff at the CSBR. This is Rolf Jacobson with the Center for Sustainable Building Research at the University of Minnesota. He came on as an environmental consultant through a grant program at the U of M. 
CSBR came in as kind of a consultant to help with the building science side of it. Aspects like the moisture safety of the wall design and the mechanical systems. Also some thermal bridge modeling. There's a lot of professionals out there that that aren't very well versed in those topics. And that was what CSBR was intending to bring everybody up to speed so we could have these discussions. Just like Steve told us about the conflicts with the building industry, Rolf also pointed to how current perceptions about the cost of sustainability impedes investment in these kinds of projects. It's kind of an ongoing fight, I think, right now and within the profession because the argument that's frequently made is we cannot afford to put money into these high-performance projects because they do cost more. And every dollar that you spend on better windows or solar panels is a dollar that you take away from building another house or another unit for somebody else. So there is that constant tension in building more housing or making it more efficient, and they're fighting for the same dollars. So how does Hillcrest size up cost-wise? Are these huge upfront costs worth it? Bottom line, yes, they are. But you have to expand your time frame a bit. Yeah, that's it, a good question. So everybody asks. It's double the price of a typical exterior wall. But in comparison, that's a pretty small percentage in the overall cost of the whole home. We, we think we're spending about three to 5% more to build this house with net zero energy versus typical construction. And the payback is always an interesting thing. The payback is 10 years on it. And some people say, well, that's, that's too long, but the house is gonna last a hundred plus years. Rolf echoes Steve's sentiments here. Costs and benefits are about much more than just what you can see today. The way that I think a lot of people more on the sustainability side see it is can't just look at the upfront costs. The way to approach it is the whole life cycle costs because it's often the same developer and owner that's paying for all those utility bills all down the line. You have to look at it as a life cycle investment and what's the best way to achieve the lowest life cycle cost. So what's the bottom line here? Why does Hillcrest matter? Well, everyone we spoke with said the same thing. Hillcrest shows what sustainable, affordable housing can look like. It opened the minds of many people involved in the project, and once constructed, will be able to show the greater community how affordable housing can be reimagined in a time when sustainability is essential. Betsy Buckheit from the Planning Commission sees Hillcrest as a great example for Northfield. I would like to think that Hillcrest can be a model. I mean, it shows that, look, you can build a development and you can make it net zero and look what happens. So I think that that part is good. Uh, and I would like to believe that we'll be able to say, yeah, look, we can do more of this. From Scott Wapata's perspective, the project is just about serving the community the way CAC has for the past 50 years. From like a housing perspective, it's really hard not to prioritize more houses now for more people. Yet, when we look at the systems level perspective of climate change is disproportionately going to affect the people we're trying to serve. And unless we think about that now, it's never gonna change. And unless somebody like CAC thinks about it, nobody else is gonna think about it. I'll give Martha Larson the last word. I hope the CAC can now be the place that we can point to and say, listen, Carlton, Sinoloff, you know, hospital, there are no more excuses you should be able to do this too. Thank you so much to Asa, Grace, Professor Jackson, and all of the other students and community members for allowing us to publish this episode. 
And thank you listeners for listening. If you're looking for more information about Hillcrest Village or a complete list of everyone involved, check out this episode's description. Make sure you keep an eye out for our next episode of Sustainable Northfield, where we make sustainability education more accessible and interesting for everyone.